Hey everybody, Joe here from the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. If you enjoy what we do here on the show and you think it's worth your hard-earned money, you can support the show via Patreon. Just a $1 donation gets you access to bonus episodes, our Discord, and regular episodes before everybody else. If you donate at an elevated level, you get even more bonus content. A digital copy of my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, and a sticker from our Teespring store. Our show will always be ad-free and is totally supporter-driven. We use that money to pay our bills, buy research materials that make this show possible, and support charities like the Curtis Red Crescent, the Flint Water Fund, and the Halo Trust. Consider joining the Legion of the Old Crow today. And now back to the show. Hello, and welcome to yet another episode of the Lions Up by Donkeys podcast. I'm Joe, and with me, as always, is Liam. Hello, Liam. Hi, Joe. We are doing this podcasting thing that we do again. We're in part two of the Battle of Kursk series. I'm being held hostage, Joe. I just want to make that clear. I'm holding him hostage from clear across the United States. It's the implication of a threat that's what matters. Because of the implication. Yeah. I have, I have mailed you a tiny... No, I can't even make that joke. It'll get, it'll get me in trouble. A tiny life-size Nate Buffet. Uh, we're in part two of the Battle of Kursk, and if you're just joining us now, I don't know why you do that. Uh, go listen to part one and then come back. I do like the idea. Something like, ah, oh, fuck it. I know what happens. Shoot me up. <laughs> I don't need fucking part one. <laughs> So last time on Lions Led by Donkeys podcast, uh, this. That is this. <laughs> so fucking loud. <laughs> uh, now, Hitler insisted on an attack on the Kursk salient, even though all of his generals kept pointing out that their armies were mostly chewed up sauerkraut and broken tanks. So Eric von Manstein planned one anyway, because, you know, Hitler's his boss and he doesn't feel like getting shot. Talk about a tough day at work, man. Yeah. Uh, hey, at least you don't have to be a Nazi anymore. Solve that problem. It's true. Now, the most important part that of Manstein's plan, according to Manstein, was uh, they needed to just do it. Like, if, if we're going to do this and it's going to work, we need to do it now. And then Hitler decided to wait because the fucking moron can never make a tactically sound decision. The most tactically sound decision Hitler ever made was to kill himself. Right. <laughs> Which I want to be clear. Good, good choice. Good idea. Good choice. Good choice. Now, there's actually a reason for this, and it's pretty well documented, and that is Hitler distrusted all of his generals. There's something of an internalized infighting that was normalized uh, within the military and civilian governments, though those would eventually become right. the same thing. And Hitler took part in that, in that he hated everybody. Um, <laughs> even his most loyal Nazi generals, like Manstein, he's like, yeah, I can't trust that fucker. So even if this plan was a best case scenario, he didn't want to do it, even though, remember, it was originally his idea that nobody else wanted to do. Right. By March 21st, he took the offensive off the table, and nobody's entirely sure why. And if you ask the other Nazis, like Heinz Guderian, it's because Hitler really didn't like it when a general became too well known, like Manstein had become after retaking Kharkov. Christ. So it's like dick measuring. When you don't need to do it, you're literally Hitler. Uh, and you know, this also happens to a lesser extent uh, in it, on the other side of this line as well. And even then, if Hitler was, wasn't being a whiny baby, it wasn't like... Hitler, known piss baby. <laughs> Hitler, known piss pants baby. It didn't matter because Manstein had a reoccurring health issue, like something to do with his eyes. 
right. and he had to fly back to Germany uh, to get medical treatment for that okay. problem. And so either way, this plan is probably going to be postponed, but it was mostly postponed because of Hitler. With Manstein gone, German chief of staff uh, Kurt Zeitzler uh, took his subordinates' plans and tweaked them somewhat, pretty much changing it and only making a, a few small changes, namely turning to a pincer movement where two armies would drive towards Kursk rather than the hammer and anvil that Manstein had decided on. You don't need to know the military tactics. Just know that he made the city of Kursk the important part. Okay. By April 11th, he smithed the plan to Hitler, and Hitler agreed. This plan was actually smaller in scale than Manstein's, but had the same end result of shortening the front, killing the Kursk salient, and you know trying to kill as many Soviets as they could in, in, in the meantime. Now, the only real reason why this was approved and at a much later date than Manstein's is Hitler actually liked Zeitzler. I thought Hitler didn't like anybody, Joe. Well, Zeitzler wasn't like a seasoned military officer. He was more of a sycophant. Oh, okay. Uh, I mean, obviously, he was a military officer, but he had spent he his was enti- really good at sucking ass. He spent his entire life on like staff officer duty. Gotcha. So he was a desk jockey. Okay. And Hitler liked him, and and more importantly, Zeitzler wasn't more wasn't more famous than he was. He hadn't won any huge military victories recently because, again, he was a desk guy. Right. All these things are important to Hitler, and they're all stupid. He was a career yesman and a staff officer with absolutely no troop leading experience whatsoever. Sounds promising. I mean, and not to mention, he never once disagreed with Hitler, even when he probably should have. Um, like, for instance, he was loyal to a fault. Uh, he refused to order a breakout from Stalingrad because Hitler didn't want it, leading to the destruction of the entire Sixth Army. So, yeah, he's that kind of loyal. Oh, good. The bad, the bad kind. Yeah, the, the very bad kind. The, the Nazi kind, actually. Now, only four days after the order was given to him, Hitler published Operations Order 6, which set the earliest date of the attack, now known as Operation Citadel, for May 6th. Um, now, of course, Hitler fucked the plan somewhat, but on paper, they made sense. <laughs> Remember, at this point, the war was unwittable through military force, and it always was going to be. Uh, the idea was to smash the Russians, stabilize the line, and secure the flanks from a possible Russian attack towards the Dnieper River. Sure. And because of those targets, it was kind of an open-ended battle, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. There was no economic target or material target like before. It was specifically a battle between soldiers against soldiers for the purpose of killing soldiers. <laughs> right. They were not seizing a, a militarily important town. They weren't taking any oil fields. They weren't taking Moscow. Just doing some violence. Just killing people. And because of that, there was problems. The plan boiled down to throw about 15 divisions at the Russian line and see what happens next. How'd that go? Like I said, on paper, this plan looked fine. Uh, the Kursk bulge was small enough uh, to bring the overused Air Force into use. A pincer move was something every German officer knew how to do, regardless of how new they were. And more importantly, German tanks could finally match Russian ones. Since the last episode, I will say the Soviets had produced the gem of World War II tank warfare up until this point, the T-34, in large enough numbers to confront the Nazis. But like we said, German armored tactics of the time were to avoid tank-on-tank battles. Tanks were only there to support infantry. Cowards. And tanks were to be killed by, you know, mobile guns or airstrikes or infantry weapons or, I don't know, fall into a fucking ditch. Like, you weren't supposed to get bogged <laughs> down and slug it out with enemy armor. 
that's hard and slow. For instance, the Mark III tank, which is the German tank, the real workhorse of the early war, had been upgraded about as far as it could go. Uh, they couldn't slap as much shit on it anymore. It was the platform was overused, and it was just not as good as the T-34. So the sure. Germans were left with a few options on how to confront this new idea of the T-34. The most popular amongst the German leaders, not named Adolf Hitler, was simply, uh, let's copy the T-34. <laughs> sound logic. They've already captured a few of them. They've reverse engineered them. Let's just do that. Now, this practically wouldn't have worked. They would have had to have made some tweaks and somewhat because they lacked manufacturing capabilities to pull it off in large numbers. Right. This meant they would have to come up with a new design that could match the T-34 and, you know, actually be built, leading to the creation of the Panther. It came with a fuckload of problems. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> it was a very, very bad tank. It came with mostly German tank engines of the war as being massively unreliable pieces of shit, as well as being hugely underpowered for powering the armor forward. But it did come with a gun that could kill a T-34, and that's what the Germans wanted. Uh. You wouldn't tell me to lose some. One out of three ain't bad, folks. Uh, actually, it it is. Um, now, the other was the Panzer V, better known as the Tiger One. Now, this was presented as a birthday gift to Hitler and might be one of the most celebrated but worst tanks ever built for war. Now, I say that simply because uh, celebrated but worse rather than just worse because there are like every other Japanese tank of the era exists and they were all much worse. Oh, the Taigo or whatever. But the, the, the Tiger one is celebrated as like this pinnacle of engineering, mostly because it looks cool. And I will give it credit. It does look cool. But that's pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> but when it did work, when its uh-huh. engine worked, its power plant functioned correctly, its road wheels didn't just randomly uh-huh. fall off from weighing too much. It was one of the best tanks on the battlefield. However, that was almost never the case. <laughs> I was going to say, that's an awful long list of caveats. Yes. Um, uh, It's like saying when the Osprey doesn't simply fall out of the sky, it works fine for the Marine Corps. That is true, but that other one happens an awful lot. It was a mechanical and logistical nightmare, mostly the logistical part. Uh, Even in the best of times, even before Nazis have found themselves thousands of miles balls deep into the Soviet Union, they probably wouldn't have been able to supply these things effectively. For instance, it could barely go 100 miles without needing gas. Embarrassing. And it required a lot of fucking gas to get that far. And you know what Germany didn't have? Gas. Gas. That's a problem. (laughs) Despite being designed for offensive operations as all German tanks were, it could only go about 10 miles per hour. That's not very offensive. And that was only over very good, perfectly flat roads. Famously, things that the Soviet Union did not have. But all of this didn't matter because it was built specifically around an 88 millimeter main gun that could outshoot anything on the battlefield, assuming the rest of the tank could take that gun to the battlefield. (laughs) It was true. If that 88 hit you, you were fucked. Uh, Your tank was probably going up in flames and nobody in it was surviving. But again, it has to get there first. Right. Now, while all of this is going on, the Germans were still planning for the time to begin to tick down on their plan. What Walter Modell pointed out that the Soviets were really digging into the salient. Uh, They weren't trying to hide it necessarily. 
Uh, for instance, aerial photos from the Luftwaffe showed that a spider web of fortifications and trench lines, like something on the Western Front of World War One, going on for miles in every direction. Oh boy! And Walter Model is is a guy known for his defensive abilities. Like that's the thing that he does, and he's like, "This is this is bad. Things are looking bad, folks. <laughs> we should not attack into that." And Hitler said, uh, nah, man, it's fine. Yeah, you know exactly what he said. Uh, now, Modal's idea was, let's hold back, shorten our line ourselves, and dig in and wait for the Soviets to attack them because the Soviets aren't good at counteroffensives yet to them. <laughs> They're right. wrong, but that's what they believe. Hitler refused, but kicked the can down the road on the offensive, pushing the date back from May 6th to 9th. This dude just loves delaying shit. And then he began uh, to think about mid-June. If that sounds like he's arbitrarily kicking things down the road, he did it again just two days before the original start of the battle. And uh, he called his top generals together and explained to them for over an hour while he had personally decided that the attack was being postponed. He's a big dumb dummy. It gets even funnier because he put forward all the reasons put forth by Modal and said they were his ideas while Modal Ah. was sitting in the room. It's like, oh, he's a Nazi. It's okay. Yeah, it's like, motherfucker. Now, the generals in the room are pretty confused by this. And since Manstein had returned from his little eye thing, he pointed out that the operations should have already been fucking done. Why are you guys still here? (laughs) Heinz Guderian said the entire thing was fucking pointless. And the chief of the Air Force of the time, Hans Joshinek? Joshinek? I don't know. Hans. uh, Pointed out that if they kept waiting the soviet air force was going to beat them uh and that would be bad and really only gunther von klug thought the operation should go ahead what a name and despite this the operations kicked back once again to june 12th the real reason for this is one hitler being an indecisive little shit and two the the new tanks uh the tiger ones and the panthers weren't ready yet and Hitler was under the idea that, like, don't worry about the T-34s. These new tanks will simply take them out. That's a problem. Because Guderian pointed out that the Panthers, the tank that Hitler was head over heels in love with, would not be combat ready for about another six weeks. And this is because they're dealing with a fuckload of problems with the weapons platform, namely being an unreliable piece of shit. Oh, crazy. Now ignoring everyone, even himself, Hitler pushed the operation back again to early July. Oh, boy. <laughs> Fuck ass. As the German army prepared to actually begin the operations, they were still badly under strength. Modal said he needed another thousand men for his infantry reinforcements. He got 400. <laughs> it's almost like a thousand. Every single one of his infantry regiments was at least 20% under strength, though uh, most were worse off. 18 panzer divisions were down to 600 tanks between them. And uh, the motorized units were moving by foot or horse-drawn wagons at this point. Oh, that's tough. Yeah, that shit sucks. It definitely reminds me of a bit from Band of Brothers. Like, you're on horses. What were you thinking? <laughs> Other units that were promised new Panther tanks got none because they didn't have any. And others got a few Tigers, but not nearly enough. Well, of course, during all of this, everyone was just lying to Hitler. Like, I don't want to be the guy to fucking tell me if we don't have that many Panthers. Now, the Germans made up for this lack of firepower with so-called assault guns. Uh-huh. These were tank chassis with big-ass guns mounted on them. Okay. 
And now these were all created as like an afterthought. In the case of the Fernand gun, it was literally made out of rejected tiger parts. Wasn't this a weapon in Battlefield 1942, secret weapons of World War II? Uh, I don't know. I know they had a, they probably had one of the more spectacular wonder tanks that they wanted to make. I think with oh, like the, the naval cannon. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I think that was technically a tank destroyer because its turret didn't move. Because again, it had a naval gun in it. You can't move that very well. Uh, but this is a Ferdinand, which is just like an eighty-eight or other gun like it piece of artillery to fire directly. And it had some shielding, like it had some light armor, uh, a turret, but the turret didn't move because they're gigantic fucking assault guns. And they worked pretty well, actually. They could churn these out pretty fast. Uh-huh. Uh, and they used these as like a stopgap. And not to mention, these would be good to take out T-34s um, because they were specifically built to reduce obstacles and tanks. Right. Now, the buildup of tanks, men, and material did a lot for morale. Since so many people had died, very few had been serving in Russia for very long. Right. And seeing such a massive buildup inspired confidence, which the book I'm using as a source here hilariously compares to the British attitude right before the Battle of the Somme. Oof. This is what we call foreshadowing. <laughs> and I, he did make that comparison on purpose. Yeah. Now, let's jump to the Soviet side. Uh, And it has often been said that the reason why the Soviets were able to defeat the Germans is because of manpower. And that is a gross oversimplification. And that is true that at the stage of the war that the Soviets did have more manpower, but that's not it. You can have a ton of people and still lose. As we've talked about, the Germans have been scraping the bottom of the barrel already while the Soviets were able to renew and reinforce its forces seemingly unendingly, as well as resupply them with an open pipeline of Lens-Lease-Act guns and ammo. Sure. The bigger population did not mean the USSR was actually absorbing these losses without feeling them. There's a fair amount of evidence to suggest that Stalin was kind of open to the political way out of this whole mess. And indirect talks between the two sides began in Sweden in 1943 Hmm. and would go on pretty much for the entire year. I mean, remember, these two sides have made a deal before. The Molotov-Riventrop fact. You know, and not to mention the same fucking foreign ministers are still there. So, like, there's a possibility there, even if it was only temporary. Right. The Soviets would have absolutely taken a temporary ceasefire because it would have given them time to rebuild. And it would have been stupid not to, honestly. Sure. But as that was going on, military planning never stopped. Marshal Georgi Zhukov was brought into the Kursk area where he was fed a continuous supply of reports from air recon patrols and partisans that the Germans had begun a massive buildup in the area. Okay. By early April, Zhukov had already suspected that the Germans meant to collapse the cursed salient, and he was 100% correct. This is reinforced by a German communist spying based out of Switzerland, as well as British reports from the cracked Enigma codes. Seemingly at no point of, of the German plan to attack the cursed salient were they ever operating in any secrecy. Ah. Thankfully, this time around, though, the Soviets actually listened, because if anybody remembers, back in 1941, British intelligence had actually figured out the exact date of Operation Barbarossa and warned Stalin about it, who did nothing. Uh, So, you know, there's that. There's a bit of evidence that Stalin was about to ignore him again if it wasn't for Zhukov, despite Mm. what would have happened after the war, because they would have a falling out. Zhukov was effectively the second most powerful man in the entire Soviet Union during this point and would be throughout the end of the war for the most part. Stalin let him rule like a king wherever he went. So when he told Stalin, look at this shit in Kursk, Stalin's like, oh, yeah, okay. Whoops. Yep. You're right. You're right, my dog. You're right. Go ahead and handle it. 
After this, the two met in Stalin's so-called power room, which honestly is one of my favorite things I've ever read about this guy. It does sound sweet. It is the most pissant power. Like this, I, I said pissant power room shit, but like this is the most pissant small business tyrant thing that you could possibly. This is some shit a guy that owns a mattress store would do, and that is, um, his desk was huge, his chair was artificially jacked up. And uh, the seats across from the table were way too small. So whenever you went into his quote-unquote power room, you would have to look up at him from across this cartoonishly oversized desk. (laughs) And like everything he handed you to use was purposefully small. Like the pencils were small. That's fucking funny. People were forced to smoke like smaller cigarettes. Asinine. It's incredible. It's just so stupid. You would expect like an app developer to do this. You know, like the fucking Bay Area or whatever. Like, yeah, I went to interview for a job and he made me sit in the Mattel playset. <laughs> I don't think I want to go back. It's it's just so funny to me. And it's been said, I'm not sure how true it is, that whenever Zhukov went into the room, he wouldn't sit down. He would stay standing. Smart boy. Yeah. So he would invite them in there and they would have their meeting. Now, Stalin favored going on the attack and knowing that the Germans were planning something in the Kursk area, he wanted to preempt them and attack first. Zhukov thought this was way too risky. He pointed out that they knew the date and time because, you know, the British told them not to mention mm-hmm. their, their partisan network was pretty fucking good at, at reconning stuff. Uh, and not to mention the communist spying in Switzerland, because of course it'd be in Switzerland. The Germans were all over the place there in their bank accounts and shit. Yeah. Give us our money back, please. <laughs> so Zhukov, had the idea, why not spend the next three months reinforcing those positions? So the Germans could then attack us whenever they wanted and grind themselves to death over the Kursk salient. Zhukov knew the hairy conditions of the German supply lines and their various logistical problems because partisans were also making that worse. Right. Uh, that's, that's what one of their jobs were. He wanted to force them into a massive battle of attrition that would bleed <laughs> the fight out of the German army, and they wouldn't be able to go on the offensive again as long as they remained in the Soviet Union. His goal was to lure them into a battle and kill as many Nazis as possible. That was it. And with that, Kursk was transformed into one of, if not the largest defensive systems in the history of human warfare. And while that is something that we all focus on, and you know, we should, it was actually a diversion. Really? The Soviets knew they wouldn't be able to hide all this movement. So they did as much of as they could in the open without even attempting to hide their massive construction works going on all across the salient. But they also knew that that's exactly where the Germans would look. It would give them tunnel vision. Like, why why are they building fucking hundreds of miles of trench lines in front of us instead of focusing their attention where the Soviets didn't want them to look? So the bonus army shit. Kind of. This would see the creation of the Step Front, which is a full reserve army of nearly 600,000 men and 1,600 tanks. God damn. That would be stationed to the north of the Kursk sector in Orel, prepared for a huge counterattack because his plan was to get the Germans fully committed to Kursk and then counterattack them from the north. And once they were fully committed, they wouldn't really be able to fucking pull out. Right. Construction of the salient's defenses began in mid-April. 300,000 civilians are put to work digging ditches, building roads, airfields, and bridges to prepare the rear supply and logistical networks that the defensive fortifications would need. 
at the front, 250 engineer companies, and each one of those is about uh, 160 people apiece, supported by pretty much every free hand they could find, began construction of strong points, bunkers, trenches, tank ditches, minefields, barbed wire, roadblocks, and other positions. Their layout was seemingly at random in places because they figured if they built in a set pattern, the Germans would be able to figure that pattern out. Right. So if they just started slapping shit down, like they're like, oh, I finally figured it out. Nope. Nope. That's fucking funny. (laughs) Yeah. And honestly, the logistical network a nightmare because not everybody actually knew where all of the positions were to include the Soviets. Like they wanted it to be completely unable to be figured out by the Germans because they knew that some of these places would fall and they didn't want anybody to have a map of the defensive networks. Sounds reasonable. Yeah, so everybody was kind of left in the dark to include the people constructing them. <laughs> Another thing the Soviets did uh, to create more guesswork was a tactic known as Maskarova. Uh, now, this is simply deception. They built huge amounts of fake shit everywhere. <laughs> That's fucking smart, dude. This included airfields, bunkers, communication centers, hundreds of decoys all over the place were built to confuse German air recon planes so they wouldn't be able to focus and figure out where the neural center of the defensive network is because it would just be everywhere, all directions. Right. Every defensive line was multiple lines deep, like something, like I said, uh, the Western Front of World War II. It was defense in depth defined. In some places, up to six defensive zones were built, all of them with a mix of bunkers, trenches, and interlocking machine gun positions. Over 500 miles of barbed wire was set up, as well as over half a million landmines. Holy shit, dude. And they plant them in in a way they average one mine per square foot of land. And if that wasn't insane enough, the Soviets also jerry-rigged together fuel bombs out of gasoline tanks and set them up near minefields so they'd blow up and shoot fire everywhere. (laughs) That's tight. That's rough, dude. <laughs> Someone just sitting around the shovel like, hey, you know what would make this worse? If this all also fire. caught fire. <laughs> this network of layered defenses would extend for 50 miles. Behind that, the reserves constructed more. Eventually, there'd be over 200 miles of defensive works. Sitting inside those positions would be almost 1 million men, 200,000 guns and mortars, and 300 rocket launchers, all supported by 3,300 tanks of various different makes and models. Anti-tank positions were built in a set grid pattern, however, about one every half mile. They were equipped with every kind of anti-tank weapon the Soviets had, like the 76-millimeter gun that could turn a tank into a burning death trap from Pretty close. Like they could just puncture straight through the front armor for most tanks, as well as shit that just simply didn't work anymore, like anti tank rifles. It didn't matter. Mm-hmm. The soldiers in these positions were given orders to hold their fire until the tanks were nearly point blank before firing to make sure they could get a good hit in. And they're also told to fight to the death, the literal order being, quote, hold and die. Oh, okay. The reserve fallback positions were not for anti-tank crews. And to underline this, the wheels were taken off their larger guns so they could not be withdrawn. All of this is supported by a mobile reserve to plug holes in the line should they happen to keep and shift this around to the worst area of fighting. Like a, we would call that now like a quick reaction force, I guess. Sure. To make all of this possible, the Soviets laid tons of telephone wire and cables for hardline radios, so almost every single position could then talk to the other one in some capacity or another. And if that failed, a small army of itself made up of runners was set up to start delivering messages. And I have to go, like, I think what makes this 
so interesting is they built their defensive backwards. By that, I mean, they focused on logistics first, which all fed into the defensive works. And that's how it's supposed to be made. Like, I don't know if anybody's ever picked up on like the main hitching point for every hilarious failure we've ever talked about. And it's always logistics. Right. Every single time. Uh, and I say that as someone who was not in logistics. That was not my branch. I didn't give a fuck about that when I was a soldier because <laughs> nobody ever thinks about it except like weird, nerdy officers uh, who I now have significantly more respect for. The quartermaster dweeb. Yeah. I have nothing but respect for my, my quartermaster dweeb friends now. Now, Zhukov's defensive plan worked in three stages. He had been fighting the Germans since the beginning and knew them pretty well at this point. He noticed their offensive capabilities were significantly less than they had been in 1942. The beaten down armored corps would be used to rely on infantry to lead the way. This would separate the tanks and the infantry and ruin the combined arms cohesion that the German military depended on in order to function. Mm -hmm. That being that the tanks would have to go reduce all of these pillboxes. They'd have to go do this. They'd have to go to, they'd have to do eight different fucking jobs than what they were supposed to be doing. They would be incredibly easy to trap and destroy without that infantry support. All of this is also on top of full-scale partisan operations that had been conducted behind German lines. By 1943, partisan operations had become a huge hinge of the Soviet battle plan. They were centrally controlled in Moscow and used as scouts and sabotage units to fuck with German supply lines. And by June, the Soviets entered into a full rail war by ordering the partisans to destroy as many miles of German track as they could. Which is like, that? I feel like somewhere that has to hurt someone deep down inside that the Partisans <laughs> massacred thousands of miles of train tracks. Yeah, um, whatever. They're Nazi train tracks. Pour, pour one out for the dead train tracks. They didn't know what they were doing. They're just The train tracks are just following orders. <laughs> I, I fully support the clean train track theory. Now, this, of course, would interfere with troop transport to the front, but more importantly, supplies. The Soviets didn't really give a shit about interrupting troop transport. This in turn created traffic jams because railways are fucked up. We have to load everybody into trucks and wagons or, you know, their Chevrolets and march their happy ass <laughs> to This would create massive groups of trucks and horses and men that could then be targeted by the Soviet Air Force. Now, speaking of the Soviet Air Force, we do need to talk about that a little bit, to be completely fair. They don't get a lot of love. The IL-2, man. Yeah, yeah, they do have an entire video game series. That's right. Outside of the Navy, which rightfully so is kind of thought of as being more of a risk to the people serving within it than the people they were fighting, the Red Air Force probably gets the least amount of attention from the, I'll call history hobbyists. Now, at the beginning of the war, they got stomped. Uh, they got they got r- real, real stomped. They got wrecked. Now, this ended up actually helping them in a very strange way, in the way that they were destroyed. Not the fact that they were destroyed. Obviously, having a shitty Air Force is better than having no Air Force at all. <laughs> but because the German Luftwaffe mostly destroyed the Red Air Force on the ground, that meant most of their trained pilots were still alive once replacements were built or furnished or whatever. Like It wasn't that, oh, we have to train an entire crop full of pilots. We still kind of have one, even if they weren't the best. By the beginning of 1943, Soviet air design was a full generation behind the standard German ME-109 and 190s. Um, this was made worse by a new generation of pilots uh, as they began to be pumped out and set to the front lines with... Uh, you want to take a little guess how many hours of flight time they had? On their 
Okay, you un- you lowballed it a bit there. Uh, that's like kamikaze level of flight pilot. 24. 18. Okay, split the difference, whatever. <laughs> I assume that is just enough to like learn how to take off and maybe learn how to land. I mean, I know planes are easier back then. Like, you don't have to learn how to computers and shit, but right. you still have to pilot a, a hurtling death machine loaded down with bombs and machine guns, at least effective enough to not kill yourself, which takes more than 18 hours. For comparison, the Germans had taken a lot of losses. Uh, their Luftwaffe has taken a lot of losses. So they also cut their hours. But when they cut their hours, they cut them to 70. Mm. Even like the worst German pilots are better than the new crop of Soviet pilots. Now, the Soviets got around this skill gap by doctrine. And that oh, is, boy. let's just not get in dogfights. That was okay. not their goal. Their goal was ground support attacks. They had fighter aircraft, obviously, to ward off German air attacks. But that was not their goal. Their goal was to like keep the Germans away from their air attack platforms just long enough. Mostly like their Sturmovics or whatever, but... Mm-hmm. as they keep them away from them just long enough to drop their bombs and get the fuck out of there. They weren't going to purposely go out and engage in a, a dogfight at this point, unless they absolutely had to, to protect airfields or whatever. The Germans were more than happy with this because this meant that if the Soviets were going to go out and contest them, they could bomb at will as, as well, right? right. Uh, so they bombed supply lines and rail yards seemingly at will uh, during the entire buildup of the battle. there's no one there to stop them. Yeah, and only then did the Soviets really start to send their fighter pilots out, uh, where they overwhelmed the Germans with like in like swarm tactics. Gotcha. It works. It works. Whatever. You might fly better than one of us, but do you fly better than ten of us? <laughs> Which if, it, is, if, it, if it's stupid and it works, it's not stupid. And it did. It actually had a weird side effect, and that is, it got a lot of pilots, a lot of flight time very quickly and it got them combat experience very quickly now this also ended up with a lot of dead soviet pilots however they learned through attrition eventually the soviet pilots that survived a couple of these missions ended up being pretty fucking good it just turns out that's not the most economic way to train an air force because they they chewed through a lot of guys (laughs) yeah it'll, it'll happen that way just think of this as all the job training I want to be a pilot. All right, kid, here's the keys. Wait, what? There you go. Get to work. Oh, if we see you tomorrow, we'll probably see you the next day. But, you know, until then, good luck. Uh, and, you know, that technology gap that I talked about would also close as, you know, the lens lease pi- pipeline opened up, but as well as, um, you know, certain not popular engineers were let out of prison, like the gulags and stuff, in order to yeah. design new planes. How convenient. Yeah. Okay, so it's mid-June of 1943 now, and uh, both the Germans and the Soviets had been preparing for this for months. Once again, the Germans were talking about delaying it. Now, this uh, the Oberkommando der Wehrmacht, which is the Armed Forces High Command in charge of everything outside of the Eastern Front, because remember, that's, that's Hitler territory, right. begged Hitler to call the whole thing off. This included the guy who planned it at this point, Zeitzler. Modal pointed out that this huge Soviet buildup was maybe a distraction because look at all these Soviets up in Orel. Don't <laughs> <laughs> worry about that. And that's the thing is right now this whole thing could be canceled. Like they they could just leave. Uh, and like Modal seemed to be the only one really worried about that. Everybody else's worries, to include the Oberkommando der Wehrmacht, was like we don't have enough tanks 
at all. And we're like three weeks away from this shit, man. At this point, it's siphoning supplies off from the rest of the war effort to the point that like other plans are having to be canceled and stuff. Now, Hitler decided to paper over these little details by one being Hitler and just lying to people without evidence. (laughs) Uh, Again, Hitler, not a good leader. I'm starting to think this guy might not be very good at his job. No, he, as it turned out, he simply promised everyone that had problems that their problems would be solved. For instance, he told Modal that he would have, you know, as many Panthers as he would need. Fun fact, he, he would not. Eight. You get eight. <laughs> you get one, sir. Make it last. <laughs> you get this one Panther road wheel we found on the factory floor when the rest of it mm-hmm. cut on fire. Um, and when he actually got the half of the number that he asked for. That rounds up to the whole number. And uh, they went to someone else who nobody was like to like modal the main push for the sector got half of what he needed. And the other half wasn't all Panthers either. Like they just like got like, like before the, uh, the replacements, like you actually get a scout car, a dead horse and this guy named Franz <laughs> turn this into an offensive for me, baby. Now in the beginning of July, the German commanders had stopped complaining. Because one, I think at this point, they've been doing this job long enough to realize it was pointless. And no matter what they said, Hitler was going to make them. Hitler got a Hitler, yeah. Yeah. Hitler's going to Hitler. Many people are saying this. Now, at this point, Hitler worked himself up into a frenzy, as he actually did often. Yeah. Sounds like Hitler. Yeah. He was known for flying off the handle for virtually no reason. And flying off the handle, I mean, like long, angry speeches as to why everybody in the room is wrong. Uh, other than him. And those speeches mostly consisted of, why don't you trust me? (laughs) (laughs) He blamed mostly his commanders. Uh, So like in this situation, obviously it's been bookended by failures, right? That's how you end up in this position. Even though again, Hitler is in command of all of this. Never once is he's like, I messed up. My plans were wrong. Uh, Maybe I need to reevaluate my plan. Take a breather or something. Yeah. uh, Everything was everybody else's fault. How he visioned his officers in the command structure was all incompetent, untrustworthy, because they keep making all of his plans fail, which is not a way to... I mean, he's Hitler. He's going to Hitler. But now he's screaming and yelling and insisting to all of these officers that his plan was going to work, no matter how many times the generals point out that it wouldn't. Mm -hmm. So I have to get into the weeds of a little thing called the Lancaster Equation. Lancaster. Lancaster equation. I'm going with Lancaster because... Yeah, Lancaster is the only one in central Pennsylvania. Yeah, I don't care. Thanks, Joe. Just suck my balls, buddy. If you want your British words to be pronounced correctly, simply don't make them stupid. That's all I ask. This is that equation. Just to underline how dumb Hitler was in case you needed more proof that Hitler was, in fact, dumb. Now, this equation is for the best chances of an offensive operation to work And that is you need a three to one numerical advantage over your opponent. And history has shown that this is pretty accurate. And rarely does something outside of these boundaries work. It's not exactly rocket science. You have more stuff than your enemy. You generally win. Like to boil it down. So, of course, Hitler ignored that bullshit. That's dumb officer speak. He doesn't need that. He's the Fuhrer. Despite the fact that this equation is so simple, so intuitive, that zoologists have discovered that monkeys have followed this before going into battle in the wild, Hitler <laughs> thought better than it. Well, that's, that's called innovation, Joe. We're, we're disrupting war, Joe. More like uh, uh, ape-ovation. 
because monkeys did it. Low effort. Boo me. I deserve it. Boo me. You suck, Joe. Yeah, I know. And you eat your own poop, Joe. That's also true. But that's not, yes. that's not here nor there. <laughs> I have a condition. <laughs> but by the time Operation Citadel would start, you want to guess how much the Soviets outnumbered the Germans? It certainly wasn't three to one. Ah, uh, Jesus. The Germans are down to what? 500,000 or less? Uh, yeah, what are the Germans at? Give me, give me at least five to one. Okay, I will give you five to one in the yeah. other direction. Oh. <laughs> the Soviets outnumbered the Germans five to one. That's what I was saying. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. The Germans were outnumbered five to one. That's and what I was trying to say. Sorry, everybody. The Nazis weren't in the dark about this. They just said, fuck it. <laughs> they didn't know the extent, mind you, but they knew they were outnumbered. So right. like every German officer... All, for all of their flaws, were like, no, we absolutely shouldn't do this outside we're of... F- we're fucked! Like, someone's like, uh, Mein Fuhrer, I've done the math, and um, we are How fucked. How you say, but fucked? <laughs> How you say they will stick their hands so far up their ass will be a slutty little elbow puppet? Oh. <laughs> and I need to point out, in his very, very flawed memoirs, Manstein said he probably should have simply told Hitler that the attack was hopeless. People were saying that they shouldn't attack, but it was the way they were saying it. Nobody was simply looking him dead in the eye and like, this is not we going can't to win work. This, right. We are going to die. Uh, but Manstein said that he probably had the political capital to get away with that. Maybe not. I mean, he was Manstein uh, because he survived the war is obviously a self-provisionist at best. And nobody dared to be blunt with Hitler because it would probably be the last time you were blunt with Hitler. Another German general, Friedrich von uh, Mellenthin, probably pronounced that wrong, wrote that, quote, the German Supreme Council uh, Command could think of nothing better than to fling our magnificent panzer divisions against Kursk, which had now become <laughs> the strongest <laughs> fortress in the world. <laughs> which, All right, rousing endorsement. Let's do this. <laughs> but like a general is saying things like, yeah, they're just going to fling our fucking people against the goddamn, like the rocks, like the ocean breaking against the wall. Like, like Sisyphus, you guys. <laughs> yeah. Now, the Germans, especially Hitler, had seemingly forgotten why they had done so well when they invaded the USSR in the first place. Independent command structure, better tactics, the freedom of movement, the Soviet top-down command system allowed the Germans to punch through and cause chaos, and incapable junior commanders of the Red Army were unable to command their own soldiers without higher guidance and control. But Kursk had gotten rid of all of that. By nature of the battle, much like World War I, it offered no opportunity of operational skill. There was no room for maneuver warfare. That was by design. The Soviets had made sure of that. One of the things that they did, and we'll talk about this a little bit later on, on part three, is that their patterns were random. Like the, the, Their hard points were random, but their razor wire and minefields weren't. Right. They were all purposefully designed to lead tanks. They didn't care so much about infantry. Infantry handles infantry. That's what a machine gun's for. Or also landmines and they're cherry fire bombs. Yeah. (laughs) The Soviets knew we kill the tanks, we win. Because you cannot win an unsupported infantry attack. This isn't fucking SOM. This isn't like whatever. Supported infantry attacks are the only way forward. And same with tanks. The only way for tank attacks to work are if they are supported by infantry. So they made sure to design their obstacles in a way to split them up by making, you know, openings for tanks, big enough for tanks, while 
Other openings were big enough for tanks, but they had anti-infantry mines. So the tanks could drive through them, but it would kill the infantry. Mm -hmm. Or in other cases, they'll have uh, choke points where they can kill the infantry, leaving only the tanks. Right. And then encircle them and destroy them. Yeah. And they would have all of these areas slowly being funneled into where one of the 76 millimeter guns are. So then they can kill the tank or failing that literal suicide bombers. But we'll get there. (laughs) Uh, There's also the dog teams. Everything about their defensive structure was to kill the tanks and separate them from infantry. Right. And because of the nature of the defense, there was no possible way for the Germans to maneuver their way out of it. Because they were, remember, they're driving in to 200 miles of defensive works. Right. They know about it. Like, this is not a secret. They know what they're doing. So, like, the skill is gone. Okay. For skills, we need numbers. They don't have numbers either. <laughs> this is going poorly. And the German officer's like, this, this is perfectly designed as a suicide, like, <laughs> which, you know, Hitler would eventually become an expert on. Oh, got him. Fucking owned, you dead bitch. The Germans were attempting to blitzkrieg their way into a battle of pure grinding attrition, which the Soviets had planned and prepared for. And worse than that, we're betting on. Right. This is probably the first time because, like, obviously the Somme would turn into a massacre. Stalingrad would turn into a massacre. But those were, like, not planned for. Right. It's also the Soviet war plan in history. <laughs> what? <laughs> the Battle of Kursk from the ground up was designed by the Soviet high command. Like, we we're going to kill so many people. <laughs> Just slap on the top of the Kursk salient. You could fit so many dead Nazis in there. <laughs> this bad boy. <laughs> Almost systematically, the German high command, namely Hitler, but yeah, he's not acting completely alone, went down a list and checked off every single one of their own advantages to make sure none of them would be a feature of Operation <laughs> Citadel. The Battle of Kursk officially began around 2 a.m. on July 5th as the Soviet 13th Army reported that, that its patrols had captured German pioneers and being like combat engineers trying to clear minefields and like... Uh, scouts and stuff like that, yeah. Yeah. Because they were attempting to clear minefields, which, of course, would be like pissing into an open ocean of piss. They have no idea how many landmines they're about to walk into. Also firebombs. <laughs> also surprise firebomb attacks. And the attack would begin an hour later. That's when Georgi Zhukov ordered the artillery to go to work. And this time it was not a drill. Opening up the Red God of War. And that is where we'll pick up next time. We're now two hours deep, give or take, into Kursk. How you feeling so far? Is, is it everything uh, that you hoped it would be? Yeah, thanks for the uh, <laughs> sucking all the joy out of it for me. Uh, <laughs> really appreciate you, dog. I don't know. I've always been interested in it just because like, like that shit doesn't happen anymore, I want to say. I don't think it could. Like we talked about, right. I think in like, you know, the last episode was like before this amount of manpower and death machines would be arrayed against one another. Someone's like, wait, 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 what are we doing? Why don't we just nuke really? somebody? Yeah. I mean, I think that um, that's probably true. I don't see a situation where a million people ever square off against one another. Right. I think the closest thing that we could possibly see I mean, like, Iran-Iraq war happened in the 80s because that was two non-nuclear powers with dictators that could feed their populations into wood chippers for a decade on end. Right. 
But I, I don't think that we'd see it anymore simply because I don't think that there's a state that exists that can deploy and coordinate this many people mm. that also doesn't have the capabilities of like drones. Or yeah, okay. I mean, of course, the 2020 war between Armenia and Azerbaijan comes to mind uh, where both of them have rather large armies built up of not great armed conscripts, but right. were decided by unconventional means being just a swarm of drones that nobody right. prepared for. Yeah, I, I can't see a situation where two near-peer enemies, like, of course, like Pakistan and India come to mind because they've had multiple gigantic wars while both of them have had had, had nukes. Many beefs. But also, like, I, I, I think one of them would have let fly if they were truly at risk. You right. know, like, you know, they weren't going to capture the capitals or anything like that, or someone would have let fly with a nuke to defend themselves. Right. Um, I think we'll see a border war with a huge formation of people. That wouldn't shock me now. Maybe uh, uh, India and China beating each other to death with like bats with nails. (laughs) I think this time has passed. Uh, And I I think that's why like the Eastern Front is so interesting to me Mm -hmm. because people rightfully mock World War I for the egregious brutality, but they don't give the same judgment towards the Eastern Front without uh, because it's like, oh, uh, obviously, I mean, like the Western Front's where this podcast got its name, Lines Love by Donkeys. Right. Um, and, and even that is kind of not accurate sometimes. But uh, you, know, you don't see people like, oh, yeah, these dumb officers just you know fed a half a million German soldiers into right. a, a prepared kill zone for a month. Like you don't see a judge the same way as you do uh, World War One. And I'm not entirely sure why. Uh, I think it's I don't know. Maybe because we don't focus so much on the Eastern Front being from the West that we are. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I think like the it. idea uh, is, is is just alien. The idea, like for all the criticisms that there are many about the United States military, the idea of prepared kill zone uh, as strategy is so goddamn foreign to us. Yeah, and even then, when we talk about it, it's one of those situations where. We do use the equation uh, effectively, like, you know, Iwo Jima, Okinawa, Tarawa all come to mind for insane kill zones. We knew we were going to be a massacre and then went ahead and did them anyway. But, you know, it's like uh, the Germans went down a checklist and made sure they didn't have a single advantage while it seemed right, right, right. that the United States military did the exact opposite because we, we weren't wanting for anything. And of course, that's what happens when you're on the winning side of a war, you fucking <laughs> assholes. I'll give, I'll give us another one before we head out. <laughs> Ooh, that one sounded diseased. <laughs> anyway, that's Kursk part two. Uh, Liam, thank you for joining You're us. Welcome. Everyone, I didn't do this at the end of the last one. That's my bad. Thank you for listening and supporting yeah. the show. You make everything we do here possible. If you'd like to hear more incredibly long-winded series where I make my guests increasingly more hopeless, please support the show. That's what I'm here for, baby. And we will talk to you on part three. Uh, and uh, that's that's a podcast. I don't know how to end this. Later. Bye, everybody. <laughs>